Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Brian Jones, a PhD candidate at the Center for Thomistic Studies, giving a talk entitled, Is the Enlightenment Working? Considerations from Alexis de Tocqueville. And without further ado, our podcast. Thank you. Um, probably, I, I could have added uh, Plato's name in, in the title as well, which I'll address at the end. Uh, so let me begin. Uh, the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker has recently argued in his new book, Enlightenment Now, that the world has improved in almost every measurable area of human life for the past three centuries, and that the progress is only continuing. The central argument that Pinker presents is meant to push against a rather resurgent narrative in American social and political thought, spanning both the left and the right, that the state of the world is not only in a condition of discontent, but experiencing a serious existential and social crisis. The progress that Pinker sees throughout the world, uh, namely the astounding decline of poverty, war, disease, and famine, and the vast increase of democracy across the globe, owes its success to the ideas laid down by the Enlightenment thinkers. According to Pinker, he says, quote, Our ancestors replaced dogma, tradition, and authority with reason, debate, and institutions of truth-seeking. They replaced superstition and magic with science, and they shifted their values from the glory of the tribe, nation, race, class, or faith toward universal human flourishing, end quote. Although Pinker himself is an atheist and a political progressive, we shouldn't necessarily think that such a narrative is one that is only stemming from the political left. A similar story is told by some conservatives, most notably Jonah Goldberg in his recent book, Suicide of the West. For Goldberg, contemporary Western citizens are suffering from a kind of amnesia about the great what, what Goldberg calls miracle that they have been given, namely lim- liberal democratic capitalism. Even First Things editor R.R. R. Reno has recently expressed concern at the fact that there is such angst displayed in American life today. This is not to say that either Reno or Goldberg think everyone is, uh, or everything is glorious and happy to the degree that perhaps Pinker conceives. However, there is something of an awareness there that seems to be, uh, uh, I'm sorry, however, there is an awareness that there seems to be something troubling with respect to the ideas coming from those who think that there is something deeply troubling. Um, Reno actually has a funny complaint that they're getting so many book reviews and first things about, um, you know, problems of uh, modernity and democracy. And um, he says this is kind of the primary sort of theme in most of their book reviews really since Deneen's book came out uh, in mid-January. So for both Reno and Goldberg, Enlightenment thought is destructive today precisely because it has been transformed into an, ide- uh, into an ideology, an ism. Yet a more nuanced reading of the Enlightenment and liberalism finds its most recent voice in Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed. 
Deneen's assessment of the liberal order cannot be more starkly opposed to Pinker, and even to a certain extent Goldberg and Reno as well. Speaking about the narrative of Enlightenment liberalism, Deneen offers the following judgment, quote, Liberalism's success today is most visible in the gathering signs of its failure. It has remade the world in its image, especially through the realms of politics, economics, education, science, and technology, all aimed at achieving supreme and complete freedom through the liberation of the individual from particular places, relationships, and memberships." End quote. Deneen's insight, whether explicit or implicit, is certainly reminiscent of Plato's Republic and the central motif of imitation and patterns. According to Plato's description of decline in Book 8 of the Republic, regimes are well understood by examining the types of souls that characteristically define them. Plato's soul city analogy is meant at one level to reveal, through the telling of certain tales, that his overarching concern is the pattern or patterns that the human soul seeks to imitate. The focal hinge of imitation for Plato will be alluded to at the conclusion of the essay. So what's worth examining in greater detail for the majority of the essay is Alexis de Tocqueville's account of the seismic social shift that occurs between what he says is the aristocratic and democratic man. Joining a socio-historical picture from Tocqueville with a philosophical description of soul types stemming from Plato might seem odd at first. However, my aim here is hopefully to provide a deeper nuance, highlighting two sides of the same coin that I think are typically neglected in contemporary political philosophy and social scientific literature more generally. I hope to make clear at some level what the Enlightenment narrative neglects, both in terms of Tocqueville's assessment and also with respect to Plato's argument about the appetitive part of the soul and the rule of reason. So with this in mind, um, I'm going to just give a brief overview first of what I call the Enlightenment narrative. Or um, uh, there's a political theorist at Georgetown, Joshua Mitchell, calls it the fable of liberalism. Uh, Pierre Manent gives it the same title. Uh, and um, so does uh, CUA's David Walsh. Um, so the, what is the Enlightenment narrative? What is the story that someone like Pinker and even Goldberg and to a certain extent Reno are seeking to sort of hold on to, right? Um, in Tocqueville's rendition of the narrative, there are two distinct historical periods that correlate with what he considers to be two different types of human beings. This is why in the introduction he says we need a new kind of political science in the democratic age. The first corresponds to the primacy of the virtues of honor and loyalty, to landed property as the predominant mode of wealth, to a hierarchically ordered society of ranks whereby classes and authority were clearly and socially established. Authority and rootedness were tied to persons and geographic places. Boundaries are also an essential feature. In this age, Tocqueville says, families remain in the same state for centuries and often in the same place. With such a condition, one is intimately connected to the past, most especially to his family lineage. 
This immediacy with respect to the past also provides a lens whereby the future is proximate as well, wherein one can already imagine his great-grandsons and he loves them. Honor and sacrifice are accorded to those who no longer exist as well as to those who will so in the future. So for Tocqueville, the, aristoc the aristocratic age is one of binding together. People are bound to nature, to place, and to others, both those who are above and below. While it is certainly the case that the existence of various social classes and hierarchies does create distance between them, this does not mean that shared responsibility and cooperation are not present. Rarely do citizens in aristocratic societies give themselves in sacrifice for what Tocqueville calls abstract humanity, but they will sacrifice for other particular people. The rise of the social conditions of equality is the fundamental facet of what Tocqueville calls the democratic age. So I think perhaps like Tocqueville, or like Plato, excuse me, Tocqueville is sort of viewing democracy not solely in political terms, though volume one of democracy in, in America is precisely what that is about. Um, so he's looking at, when he says democracy, he's primarily speaking of the social conditions of equality. Landed property is no longer linked with familial authority and identity. Thus, the once understood organic integration between nature and property is extinct. The various kinds of economies, such as honor, trust, and loyalty, have subsided in an age where we are, according to Pinker, healthier, richer, safer, and freer. Freedom comes to be seen as the absence of disease, poverty, war, famine, violent crimes, safety hazards, oppression, and discrimination. We would call this the freedom of well-being. Tocqueville's analysis with respect to America rings loudly through Pinker's lens. Tocqueville says, quote, It is a thing to see with what sort of feverish ardor Americans pursue well-being and how they show themselves constantly tormented by a vague fear of not having chosen the shortest route that can lead to it, end quote. According to Tocqueville, aristocratic societies were organized such that the social body could have stability, power, and above all, glory. In contrast to this, the democratic social state has brought forth a confusion of ranks, where, quote, the barriers raised among men are lowered, estates are divided, power is partitioned, enlightenment spreads, and intelligence is equalized, end quote. Tocqueville goes on then to profess what is his deepest worry about the democratic age. This comes from the introduction of Democracy in America. He says, quote, we have destroyed the individual entities that were able to struggle separately against tyranny, but I see that it is government alone that inherits all the prerogatives extracted from families, from corporations, or from men. The force of a small number of citizens has therefore been superseded by the weakness of all, end quote. In a paradoxical way, Tocqueville says that the, that the democratic age is one that will eventually become tranquil, but not due to its well-being and the other goods at the core of the Enlightenment narrative. Instead, democratic citizens believe themselves weak and infirm, 
He says that each feels ill, but no one has the courage and energy needed to seek something better. Like the passions of old men that end only in impotence, desire, regret, sorrow, and joys that produce, produce nothing visible or lasting. He vividly paints a picture of the, of the democratic condition in this way. We have abandoned what goods our former state could present without acquiring what useful things the current state could offer. We have destroyed an aristocratic society, and having stopped complacently amid the debris of the former edifice, we seem to want to settle there forever. So, Tocqueville, so there, there's sort of th two things cutting in, in, in different directions, right? In one sense, he says, um, with democratic citizens' love of equality, the thing that they want to prevent more than anything is an aristocratic society. Um, so that's sort of the great uh, joy or the, the great sort of empowerment that's felt by looking over the, the, the bygone age, right? But he says there's also a great fear and timidity that we have by looking over that, which I'll kind of go over now. So what is the good... Uh, what is the good the former condition offers that could be enkindled in this new state of affairs? The answer here is to be understood at the social level, and again refers to the penultimate description that distinguishes the aristocratic from democratic from the democratic age. Tocqueville says, quote, "Aristocracy links everybody, from peasant to king, in one long chain. Democracy breaks the chain." Each man is thereby thrown back on himself alone, and there is a danger that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart, end quote. So because they have been cut off and thrown back upon themselves, Americans are in the habit of considering themselves in isolation, and they willingly fancy that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Thus, democracy tends towards constantly leading back towards the self alone and threatens finally to confine him wholly within his own self or within his own within the solitude of his own heart this description i would contend is the debris of the former edifice that we as democratic citizens are looking over if we could put it in this way the Enlightenment ideals are sort of the glorious, this is what, this is coming from um, Pinker. Enlightenment ideals are the glorious and heroic armor that we wear as we observe the ruins of the past. We watch over the ruins of old, the institutions, ideas, and the mores, and we breathe a sigh of relief that the social state becomes democratic, while the empire of democracy is peacefully established over institutions. Tocqueville declares that since we live in a new world, thus the, a new political science is needed. Tocqueville's understanding of democratic honor also distinguishes it from the aristocratic age. He contends that the democratic social state in its origins and in its political institutions is ordered towards commerce and industry. He says they therefore presently form an almost exclusively industrial association placed in the bosom of a new and immense country whose exploitation is its principal object. Tocqueville continues by saying, the, Americans, the, uh, the American needs the daily supports of an energetic passion. 
That passion can only be the love of wealth. The country is boundless and full of inexhaustible resources. The people have all the needs and appetites of a being that is growing. And whatever efforts they make, they are always surrounded with, surrounded with more goods than they can seize. Men who live in democratic societies have many passions, but most of their passions end, for Tocqueville, in the love of wealth or issue from it. That comes from the fact that not that their souls are necessarily smaller, but that the importance of money really is greater in the democratic age. When fellow citizens are all independent and indifferent, it is only by paying them that we can obtain the cooperation of each. And this infinitely multiplies, for Tocqueville, the use of wealth and increases the value of it. Um, you could think just to, to sort of illuminate Tocqueville's perspective here about the predominance of wealth and money, think of this generic definition of private property. All right, not this doesn't come from Tocqueville. So the right to private property is the social political principle that adult human beings may not be prohibited or prevented by anyone from acquiring, holding, and trading with willing parties valued items not already owned by others. Now, this is brief, there's much to say here, but simply want to just call to mind the perspective on property and land that is seen in almost exclusively monetary terms. All right, You have terms like holding, trading, willing parties, and equating property with other valued items. All right, So the point is just to simply say that um, Tocqueville's lens, I think, is operative here, right? just the way that we view property and real estate. All right. Um, Thinking also, too, of when he says, like, when you plant the seeds in your garden, you're already getting ready to move and buy new property before the seeds even spring. Um, so that's just a brief, much more could, could be said there about this sort of enlightenment or, or maybe even liberal narrative. But um, let me move on then to the next section and just specifically addressing the the question that's the title of the essay, right? Is the Enlightenment working? Uh, in the introduction, I alluded to Pinker's remarks with, with respect to a number of social realities worth affirming. Again, the rates of poverty decline, reduction of war, disease, famine. We could even extend the list in the following way. We could say things such as freedom from religious persecution, Foreign and arbitrary freedom from foreign and arbitrary rule, government interference in the economy, and exploitation by sub by privileged sub-political groups. These goods are necessary to affirm, and at the same time, there is perhaps a more nuanced response, and one that I contend to be somewhat darker, precisely as a result of its subtlety. In his recent essay in The Atlantic, Shadi Hamid observes that while liberalism and the Enlightenment ideals have their faults, he says, I wouldn't want to live under a non-liberal or even a less liberal system. His position, which certainly echoes the likes of Goldberg and Reno mentioned beforehand, rests upon his concluding argument against those critics that he deems as anti-liberal. Quote, what, what, liberalism, uh, what liberalism and the Enlightenment's critics appear unable 
or perhaps unwilling to address, is whether a lack of meaning is a worse problem to have than a lack of freedom. Hamid's question could be rephrased in the following way. Would you hope to live in a liberal democracy surrounded by endless choice presupposed to no political or cultural telos, or live in something akin to an Islamic state where there is an absence of freedom? Now, on the surface, such a stark dichotomy is rather attractive intellectually, and the answer appears to be quite obvious. Right? Who wouldn't want those freedoms? However, uh, Tocqueville already saw the irony of this problematic in believing that the social battle is really a dichotomous choice between either freedom or meaning. Uh, at the conclusion, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just read snippets of it. This is the conclusion of democracy in America, which you might be familiar with this sort of prediction of what Tocqueville sees might happen in the democratic age. He has a rather bleak picture of this narrative, of this dialectic of either freedom or meaning. All right, so here's Tocqueville. He says, quote, I've seen an innumerable crowd of like and equal men who revolve on themselves without repose, procuring the small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. Each of them, withdrawn and apart, is like a stranger to the destiny of all the others. His children and his particular friends form the whole human species for him. As for dwelling with his fellow citizens, he is beside them, but he doesn't see them. He touches them, but does not feel for them. He exists only in himself and for himself alone. Above these, an immense tutelary power is elevated, which alone takes charge of assuring their enjoyments and watching over their fate. It is absolute, detailed, regular, far-seeing, and mild. Thus, after taking each individual by turn in its powerful hand and kneading him as it likes, the sovereign extends its arm over society as a whole. It doesn't tyrannize. It simply hinders, compromises, extinguishes, dazes, and finally reduces each nation to being nothing more than a herd of timid and industrious animals for which the government is the shepherd. <clears throat> I'm not I am not convinced that the condition of American social and political life can be properly understood without seeing this Tocquevillian lens, the dialectical circle between individualism and statism, which I think the, the dialectic between freedom or meaning is a part of that. For Tocqueville, in the democratic age, reason will be thrown back upon itself and its own resources. This new type of reason, if you will, will throw off the atavisms of tradition, authority, dogma, and religious faith. This is, for Tocqueville, the Cartesian legacy of America's philosophical methodology. The liberation of reason from tutelage ironically lends itself towards a condition of solipsism or tends towards solipsism. As we are released from stable forms of association and connection, we will seek the reason for things in ourselves more and trust others less and less. Coeval with this will be the proclivity towards a greater reliance upon public knowledge, or I'm sorry, upon public opinion as knowledge. 
reason will actually decline in Tocqueville's judgment because it will position itself as supreme, yet actually be feeble and incapable of achieving what it portends. It will need the assistance of some other reason, but it will likely be the reason of science and the state. The judgment is certainly unsettling, for it is revelatory of a deep undercurrent at the heart of democratic equality itself. What is needed is the courage to find and foster those opportunities wherein we can come together in the presence of other people. The depth and variety of these possibilities is extensive, but what we must, what we must not lose sight of the, the key. This coming together in, local, in the local forms of our community, say in neighborhood, for example, is the first step in getting us to move and be drawn outside of ourselves. In so doing, we work against this perennial temptation that I think we are trying to come to grips with still, which is to see ourselves as alone, and even from there, to see ourselves as the ultimate judge of reality and meaning. And so interestingly enough, it is also at this juncture that you have to bring in uh, some reflections that I want to bring in some reflections on Plato and to do so let me just start by giving the final uh, few sentences of Francis Fukuyama's uh, essay in 1989 the end of history um, and I say I, again um, I think this uh, sometimes maybe we, we miss this last part of the paragraph that uh, what what is Fukuyama's ultimate maybe judgment about the end of history? He says, quote, The end of history will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, uh, the worldwide struggle that called forth daring, courage, imagination, and a proper idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. In the post-historical period, there will be neither art nor philosophy." End quote. So why, for Fukuyama, is such a condition sad? In Book Two of The Republic, Plato contrasts the true city with the luxurious or feverish city. Now, while much can be said about it, the feverish city's penultimate principle is what Plato says is the unlimited acquisition of money. Now, in the first city, currency of some sort would certainly exist. He calls it, in Bloom's translation, it's a token of exchange. I hope I won't be in trouble for using Bloom's translation. Um, <laughs> however, currency in this first city is a means of exchange and good to the degree that it is supportive of and grounded in what is the highest good for human life. What happens in the feverish city in Plato's reckoning is critically important, especially with regard to the remaining books of the Republic. In contrast to the true city, the feverish city conceives of the appetites as something no longer that can no longer be pushed down by nature and limits. The appetites then become released, unshackled from the chains of order. And it is for this reason that the feverish city's first principle spills over into the arena of geographic and military empire. 
with the release of the appetitive powers comes its eventual demise. For all is wanted, but nothing satisfies. So there's kind of the irony here of this, if you go back to, to Tocqueville at least, um, the quietude of economic calculation in, for now kind of in Plato's judgment doesn't lead or it doesn't hold the quietude or at least over time uh, perhaps the quietude can't hold because of this releasing of the appetites. The relationship between the predominance of wealth, the unleashing of the appetitive powers, and democratic man is alluded to already by Tocqueville. Again, this is what I said before. Men who live in democratic societies have many passions, but most of their passions are in the love of uh, end in love of wealth or issue from it. So however we may attempt to define or characterize enlightenment thought, we must be able to hold together the perennial threat of isolation that arises from the social conditions of democratic equality. Additionally, Tocqueville's conclusion that wealth becomes the predominant principle, or one of them, uh, of democratic societies can and ought to be coupled with Plato's account of the feverish city and the release of the appetites. You can also see this, as I mentioned earlier, in Book 8 of the Republic and the Decline of Regimes. So we are in need of those habits of association that draw us outside of ourselves. And we are simultaneously in need of a capacity for ordering our souls well. This argument is made at the end of Book 9 of the Republic. In, the in this concluding section, Plato is not so much concerned with the actual political founding of the best city, but that the best city be set up within our souls. So here's the final part of Book 9. Right? I understand, he said, you mean he will in the city whose foundations we have now gone through, the one that has its place in speeches, since I don't suppose it exists anywhere on earth. But in heaven, I said, perhaps a pattern is laid up for the man who wants to see and found a city within himself on the basis of what he sees. It doesn't make any difference whether or not it, whether it is or will be somewhere, for he would mind the things of this city alone and of no other, end quote. For Plato, philosophy is the paradigmatic activity of seeing what is eternal, of seeing the good. Plato is saying, or is telling the readers that what we do, those actions that we put into the world are expressions and vestiges of a pattern that we are imitating. Thus philosophy places us at a basic level into contact with a paradigm that is ultimately not of human but divine origins. So these two truths um, that we, as Augustine says, seek the immortality of wisdom and combat the isolation that is characteristic of the democratic age cannot be neglected in our time. For the danger is not so much the fact of equality, rather it is that we will eventually choose, in Tocqueville's judgment, that erroneous intellectual judgment that leaves us trapped 
in what he calls the solitude of our own hearts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot edu slash cts.